Um, if you are with us and you do not have a scripture journal but would like one, it's a place that you can have the scripture. Also take notes alongside of what is preached and taught here every week. So if you just raise your hand, we'll get you a scripture journal. Anybody, 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 anybody? All right. No takers, it looks like, this morning. All right. Well, again, welcome. We're glad you're back. Uh, I know it's spring break, so many of them are still making their ways from different parts of the great state of Florida. And so I'm sure you're watching at home online. I know you're not sleeping in because it's your last day to do so. So welcome joining us online live or on the recording if you had to catch it. Uh, also, our mission team is back from Columbia. Uh, they arrived this evening and had a good, great time and a great trip uh, sharing the gospel with our church plant down, uh, down there. And so we will be hearing from them sometime in the near future, telling us just all the cool things that God did on that trip. But today, for this moment, I have the opportunity to open up God's Word and proclaim to you first Corinthians chapter 13, that big famous passage on love. But last week, uh, David did a wonderful job explaining to us how vital and necessary each and every person at Aletheia Church is to fulfilling the mission, the mission of building God's kingdom here on earth. He explained to us that God has sovereignly given and appointed gifts, both natural and spiritual, to us so that we could each participate in the role that he has designed for us. Every part of the body of Christ matters and is necessary for the sake of the whole. Every one of you matters and is integral to the work that God is doing in the world. And we have to ask ourselves, why was it necessary for Paul to write this letter? Why is it necessary for us to preach and teach that message to you? Because inside churches today, just like in the church in Corinth, especially in their setting and situation, they had established a hierarchical order with the spiritual gifts. And what was the result by saying some gifts were better or, be, or to be desired more than others? Well, it's that famous 10th commandment that God wrote about a long time ago, the prophet Moses, that command about do not covet. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff, his house, his wife, his servants, his ox, his donkey, his corvette, his type of food, his vacation. Whatever your neighbor has, you should not covet it. Because what happens when you covet? Well, you start to complain that you don't have what someone else has. And what happens when we start to complain? We start to lose our joy. The people who should be full of joy lose their joy because they covet and they complain. Well, then what happens? Well, there becomes competition between the people over these gifts that God has given out freely of his own free will. And that for those, for those who have those gifts, they can then become arrogant. Because I have this gift. I have the more special gift. You don't. So I must be a better Christian. God must love me a little bit more than he loves you because I got the better gift. And so they ended up creating this hierarchical order inside the church because in their mind, the gift indicated how spiritual slash special the person was. And people were now being ranked according to their spiritual gift. And that's what makes Paul's illustration of the body so helpful, that God has created all of these parts. They're different, they're unique, but yet they all serve a specific function. 
But they were all clamoring for one gift. Specifically here, the gift of tongues had become the pinnacle gift inside the church of Corinth. And so they, uh, they were wanting to build something more horrific than Frankenstein's monster rather than the beautiful body of Jesus Christ. And I just got to say, I have so appreciated David's illustration from last week. Uh, it has been great because it, it's sticky in my mind, yet it has totally ruined me for the rest of my life how I look at his wife. Because if you remember from his illustration last week, he said, I love my wife's beautiful eyes. But it would be quite a horrific thing if Brittany's head and face was nothing but a glob of eyeballs to look at all the time. And so every time I've gone through this sermon and imagined that this week, and even when I saw her today, I could not see Brittany's face. I could only see her as a glob of eyeballs walking around the lobby this morning. So David, thank you for the illustration. Brittany, I am sorry, though, that this is the only way I can see you for the foreseeable future. But we, but we get the point of these illustrations and, and how it would be. And so everyone was wanting to be one thing when God had specifically created these unique and individual things. And that's why he says, closing out chapter 12, transitioning into chapter 13, I must show you a more excellent way, something beyond having this incredible desire and clamoring over these spiritual gifts. I must show you the way of love. And he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up to my, my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so he's saying to them, look, God may have given you this gift of tongues because tongues is at the control of the one who is speaking. And you may be able to have direct communication in an angelic language with angelic beings. But, but if, if love is not the root and center of this, you're just a noisy gong. You're a clanging cymbal. He says, if God has gifted you with prophetic powers that you can speak, you can see into someone's life and you can speak directly and they feel like you are reading their mail, right? If it's not being done in love, it doesn't count for anything. He said, God may have given you the understanding of the Trinity, of free, of free will, of predestination, of the sovereignty of God. You may understand all of that, but, but knowing all that and not exercising that in love it counts for nothing. He says, you could even go as far as giving away all that you have. But if you're giving it all away to receive praise and recognition from men, or simply as what reward you might get, if it's not done in love, then it's, done, it's nothing. He said, you could even go as far as giving up your entire life. You could go and sacrifice yourself as a martyr and let your body be burned. But if love is not at the root and center, it counts for nothing. Because there was a teaching in the church in Corinth specifically that those who endured the most were the most spiritual among them. They believed that if you were to be martyred for your faith, it would wash away any and all sin that you had ever committed. 
And Paul says, this is not love. These great sacrifices that people might see and recognize, if it is not done in love, all of it counts for nothing. And so he he is going to show us today what love is and what love is not, what love does and what love does not. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now I want to take a few moments and I want to really open up this word love to make sure we all have a very clear understanding of this word. Because this is a word that we really need to make sure that we understand when we are reading the Bible. Because if we don't, then we allow the influence of the modern world and our everyday cavalier use of this word to have a greater influence upon us as we try and digest God's word rather than God's word having its transforming effect upon us as we go out into the world. So please, just for a moment, don't sit there in silence and give me some answers, give me some feedback of something you absolutely love in this world, like warm, fresh chocolate chip cookies. That's what I love. I love warm, fresh chocolate chip cookies. Anybody else? So tell me something you love. Florida basketball. It's been a, it's been a rough, rough year for you. Yes. What else? Your mom. All right. What else? Who else? What else? Anything else? Huh? A good cup of coffee. Yes. What else? Your sisters? No one has yet said their spouse. I mean, not one person loves their spouse in this. Huh? Thank you. Thank you. Anything else? Disney, any Disney lovers in here? Huh? One, one person, a guy. One guy loves Disney in here, right? Okay. So, but, but we use this, this word. I mean, how many times do you think the average person uses the word love throughout the week. Any guesses? I bet it's at least 50 to 100 times a week, if, if not more. I, I have no idea, no, no data saying how often it is. But I do find it rather interesting that of the 171,000 words that exist in English, I can use this one word love to express how I feel about cookies and how I feel about my wife. And we use this word so interchangeably across everything. And it, it, it must be a, a shock sometimes to people who come into our country from a different culture and language that we use this one word literally for every single thing that we have some endearing sentimental feeling about. And this creates a twofold problem because when I say I love cookies and I love my wife, those two things are not in any world imaginable near the same thing. And, and the problem is, is that this word in English is always associated with a sentimental feeling. 
And so when we, when we read this word love in Scripture, we are more prone to overlay our current cultural understanding of the word rather than really knowing what it is that God means when this word is used in Scripture. And the problem is there, there, there are four different words for love in the Greek. And so this morning you are going to get a three-minute seminary lesson. And I know you're saying to yourself, no, Daniel, spring break has still not ended we go back to school tomorrow, we're on break, but I'm sorry, for the price of admission today, you're going to put up with this three-minute seminary lecture, okay? And I'm going to show you there's four different words that are often translated love inside the Bible. And the first one you're going to pick off right off the bat, you're going to understand, is the word eros. And it is what, where we would use our word sexual love, right? So if you see uh, the word eros, which you're never going to see in the Greek, but sometimes that form of love is used in the scripture. There's also a word translated love called storge, which refers to family love. This is the kind of love that is between a parent and a child or between family members in general. The other one you're going to know right off the bat, it's the word philia, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is the third word for love, and it speaks of a brotherly friendship and affection. It is the love of deep friendship and partnership. But the word for love today that we see uh, in this passage is the word agape. And if you've been around the church for a long time, maybe you've heard this word described, but it has a very deep, rich meaning that expounded upon is a love that loves without changing. It is a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. It is love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives, love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. And so... Now you see the problem for us here in this context and this culture that how I love chocolate chip cookies and you love all the trivial things that you love in this life, you see that I love the cookie for one reason alone. I love the cookie because of what it does for me. I love the cookie because of its ooey, gooey, warm, delicious, doughy bread that covers up those chocolate chips and how it feels on my taste buds and how it tastes going down. I give nothing to the cookie. I only like it for what it does for me. If the cookie was not good and tasty and wonderful, I would have no use for the cookie whatsoever, and therefore I would not love the cookie in any way, shape, or form. I only love the cookie for what it does for me. But yet, when the Bible is using this word today, that is not anywhere in the realm of definition that Paul or the church in Corinth would have understood this word. They would have understood that here in this moment when love is being used, it's the exact opposite. This is a love that is totally being given away. This word is the antithesis to how we so often use the word love in our cultural context in everyday interaction with people and things. And church, this is really good news for you and me 
that God has this type of love for us. God's love toward you as the children of God is unchanging. Some of you are in here today and you're just not in a great spot. You are questioning, you are doubting, you, you are wondering if God actually loves you. You need to know as a child of God, God's love for you will never change no matter how much of a prodigal or a poo-poo head you become. Right? No matter what. Now, he may not approve of you in some ways. He may be displeased with some of your actions at times in your life. But you need to know that relentless love that he has, that relentless love that pursued you and captured your heart, that took out your heart of stone and changed it to a heart of flesh in the very first place, that love never changes. That love will continue to pursue you for all your days. You need to know this agape love that God has, it gives without demanding or expecting repayment. Listen, you don't have to repay God for anything. That price was paid by Jesus. The, the reason Jesus died and paid that price for you and me is because it could not be paid any other way. Now, sure, there is an expectation that you would show gratitude for God for what he has done, but there is no expectation that you can actually repay God because he has given this agape love toward you. This agape love, it is said, can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. And some of you may be feeling that today. You may be feeling that you are unlovable. You may be feeling that you are unappealing to God. But you have to remember, God loved you when you were unlovable. God loved you when you were an enemy of God. God loved you when you had put yourself at enmity with Him because you had chosen to go your own way, because you had chosen to worship the creation rather than the Creator. But even in spite of that, God still loved you. So you were at one point unlovable, but you are no longer unlovable because you are a child of the King. And lastly, this agape love, it loves even when it is rejected. We all have times in our life, we all have moments every single day where we choose to sin, where we choose something else over God, where we choose ourselves over God, where we choose ourselves over other people. And even when we reject God's commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even when we choose to reject God's commandment to love our neighbor as ourself, God does not stop loving us. God does not love us because of what we do for Him. God loves us because God is love. And He in his gracious favor, has bestowed upon us the gift of being his children. That is the good news of love. That is the good news of this passage. And so Paul here, 
And again, they, they would have understood this. They would have grasped this because they would have heard the word agape and understood it. But we need to know and understand that when Paul uses this word and he says love is, this is exactly the type of love that he is talking about. This self-giving love, not chocolate chip cookie love that only loves because of what the cookie does for it. And so he says, love is patient and love is kind. So we see right here that love is others-oriented and it is also described by action words. It is not selfish and it is not a sentimental feeling. Biblical love, agape love, is others-oriented, and it is to be seen in action. Paul is not writing about how love feels. He is writing about how it can be seen in action toward others. And the first thing he says is love is patient. Now, a better way, I think, to grasp the imagery here is love suffers long. That's what it means to be patient. Patience is not waiting 30 seconds for something to be done in the microwave. Right? That's the American version of patience these days. The Bible says that love is patient. Love is long-suffering. And the Bible says that God is long-suffering toward us. All right? It also says that love is kind. This is an adjective which includes the attributes of loving affection, sympathy, friendliness, pleasantness, gentleness, and goodness. Love is patient. Love is kind. How are you doing with your patience? Anybody feel like they've got that mastered yet? Anybody feel like, yep, I am as patient a person as there ever is? I think at times we feel that way, right? And you know what happens as soon as we kind of feel that way? God graciously introduces someone or something into our lives that presses that button, right? And what is the, how do we know when we're no longer patient? What, what should be the first sign to us that we're no longer patient? Irritation, anger, resentment. Now, how do we know if we are being patient? Oh, it follows with kindness. When that thing or that person enters into our lives and we find ourselves being kind towards someone or something that doesn't deserve our kindness, then we can say to ourselves, like, hmm, I did pretty good there. I, a little, I feel a little love flowing through, flowing through my body, right? Because I'm being patient and, and kind with this. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm one of those people that, man, I feel, for, for the most part, like I'm, a, I'm a kind of a chill, relaxed person in a lot of ways. And, uh, but man, the moment I start feeling that, you know what God does? He usually sends one of my children into my into the room. And I quickly learn how patient I am not, especially when they are interrupting what I'm doing and interrupting my program and my schedule. Uh, children are an incredible tool of sanctification in our lives, an incredible tool of long suffering. Um, yes, but a good and gracious gift from God. I have to remind myself on a regular basis because I have four of them because only a few of them weren't enough. 
We often say, and I say this in front of my children, if our last two would have been our first two, they'd have been our only two. All right? So, uh, yes, God just said, hey, here's the whole thing. And all of my children are different. None of them are even close to the same. So they're working every edge uh, off this rough exterior. Other things that love does not and is not. Love does not envy or boast. I, I like talking about this word envy. You know, coveting, I think we understand very simply, is that you know, it's, it's wanting and really having a strong desire for something else that someone else has. But envy is coveting plus. Envy is wanting what someone else has and wishing they didn't have it. Right? Um, the, the, I found envy in my life uh, when I had Facebook. Right? I, I found envy uh, because I would see people that I knew, especially people that I didn't like from high school, which was, you know, like a long time ago. And I would see what they had, and I would actually want what they had. But then I found myself saying, they don't deserve that. I deserve that more than they do. There's no way they deserve having that. And I found myself being envious. A year and a half ago, got rid of Facebook. Did it cure the envy? No. But did it remove a lot of the temptation where my eyes were really suffering because there's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? Absolutely. Have you identified areas in your life? Look for it this week where you're sitting there, and not only do you want something, but you say to yourself, that person doesn't deserve that. The moment you say that to yourself, you are committing the sin of envy because you want what they have and you don't believe that they deserve that gift, whether it be from God's special grace or God's common grace. Love, it's not arrogant. That just means love is not self-focused. You know, uh, it's C.S. Lewis who said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So when the Bible says that Jesus was humble, that's what it's talking about. Jesus put others before himself. Jesus lived a life that served others. How are you doing in your own thoughts and in your own mind? Are you always focused on how you feel and what's happening to you? Or are you focused on loving others? Love is not arrogant. It is not focused on itself. Love also, it, it does not boast. I, I will tell you, one of the, the most helpful thing I've ever heard about boasting, I heard from a story about Tim Tebow's dad one time. That when Tim was young and playing uh, peewee football, and he was scoring like 10, 15 touchdowns a game, as I'm sure he did, right? Like he would always come home from the game. He would run up to people. and He'd be like, man, you will never believe it. Like today I scored this many touchdowns. I had this many yards. I did this many things. And his dad sat down and he said, you know, Tim, the Bible says that we should not boast. And when you come in, and the very first thing that you do when you walk in, that you tell everybody about all of your accomplishments, you're, you're, you're sinning against God. 
Now, I don't want you to think you can't tell anybody what you did because that would just be terrible and miserable and, and I don't think any of us would ever make it. But here's, here's the practice I want you to put into your life. You need to wait until someone asks you how you performed. So the next time when you come after a game and granddad says to you, Tim, how did it go today? I want you to tell him everything that you just told him with as much fervor, with as much excitement as you can muster up. You tell him everything. But you make it a practice of waiting. Because when you wait and when someone asks, it's not boasting. But when you just run in the room and you just tell someone of your exploits and all the things that you have and all the things that you've done, you have committed the sin of boasting. Do we ever think about that in our own daily lives? How prone we are just to proclaim all the things that we're doing. And it's a hard line because it's like, oh, I'm telling somebody and I'm boasting. But this is just something for you to think about this week. Do you find yourself boasting proudly to others on a regular basis? And are you doing it to puff yourself up to make yourself look good in front of other people? He goes on to say that love does not insist on its own way. Do I have any persistent personality types in here? Huh? Can, do you immediately kind of feel the weight of this one? Is, it, is this one you feel, right? Because there are just people in life who just don't take no for an answer. My, my youngest son, who today is his last day in single digits, tomorrow he hits double digits. This, this is a milestone for me, okay? I feel like I've gotten all my kids to double digits. That, that's at least a, a step of success in life, okay? And... He, he is known around our house as the negotiator, all right? We always say no is just a pause on the way to yes for him. Like, th that word just does not exist in his world. Like, it doesn't matter. And, 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 and I heard him one day explaining how he does this with his older, one of his older siblings. Because they were trying to get something, and right in front of me, he's like, no, 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 no. That is, that is not how you do this. That is not how you do this. You, 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 you never start, you, you never make as your first point the thing that you will settle for. You have to begin in small incremental steps and work them toward what you want. And eventually, you'll probably get what you want before it gets to the end. Now, he is nine years old explaining this to his older siblings. And, and, and I knew this was like the part of his personality, but I never realized this is what he sits and thinks about all the time. Like every time before he has a conversation with me, he has sat down and he has, he has thought out every step along the way of where he wants to begin this so that he can get what he wants. I'd be like, I feel so manipulated and abused, right? But even then, like, when you're dealing with like four kids all the time and the businesses that we have and, the men and all the things we've gone on in our lives, there's just times you can't, you can't, you don't have enough time or willpower to say no. And so he just knows he's going to get it. And it, that's just who he is. But man, it's really hard if you've got that personality to actually take no for an answer. Because the, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, that we as human beings should look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
But yet, if you've got that pushy personality, you just won't take no for an answer type personality, you've got to ask yourself, are, are you using it for the good of other people and agape love? Are you just using it to get what you want? Because if you're just using it to get what you want for your own self-interest, that's not agape love. Not only is this love not insist on its own way, but this love is not irritable. I mean, let's just be honest. Are, are, are there people that irritate you? Are there situations that irritate you? Are there politics that irritate you? Right? I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think if you, just, if you could just define Twitter, I, I think, in, in one word, just angry, right? I mean, it is angry birds, right? And I think it's so funny that, that basically you have the little symbol for Twitter, right, which is a little bird, and the game angry birds. I, I, that's all I can see. I, I've, never, you know, I've never had a Twitter account. I don't know. I just see people angry all the time, yelling, yelling at one another. But it's just this place that we're so irritable, right? And it says love it is not that. So if, if you're irritable at someone or something, because again, it's easy to love those that love us, right? And do you realize that Jesus actually says we get no credit for that? We get no credit for loving those who love us. He goes, because agape love, that really gets put to the test when we loving those who are what? Our enemy. How are you doing at loving your enemies? Like, it is easy for me to love my wife. I like her a lot. I like her more than all of you combined. All right? I really love her. It's really easy to love her. Somebody who thinks differently than me, acts differently than me, whose personality just grates on my ever-loving nerve, it is hard to muster up agape for that person. It's pretty easy to do it for my wife. Love is not resentful. This literally means in, in the Greek, love does not store up the memory of any wrong it has received. So if you're, yeah, uh -huh. let's, let's take this concept of irritable and resentful and let me give you a little help. Love does not get hysterical or historical. What do we most often do in our arguments with people? You have a default and you may do both. You get hysterical. Or you get historical. And how do we get hysterical? We can allow our emotions to override all common sense and logic, and we can scream and yell and pitch a fit with the best of them. We can put babies to shame with our temper tantrums sometimes, right? Because we can get hysterical in our responses. But not only can we get hysterical, we can also get historical. Because we use the events of the past we use the sins of the past against that person, and we just store them up, and we're waiting. Oh, the next time that person does that to me, I've got this one stored away, and I'm going to lob it as this grenade right into the middle of the argument. And so love does not get hysterical or historical when it's responding to what's happening to it. And lastly, he says love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love is willing to want the best for others, 
and love refuses to color things against others. Instead, love rejoices in the truth. Love can always stand with and on the truth. Like, this is why I can stand beside someone that I disagree with on so many issues if we can find the common ground of God's truth on a single issue. Because I can rejoice with truth, God's truth, anywhere it is found. And we can find common ground with people. But also, we have to be able to reject wrongdoing even with people that we love, even with people that we know. When we are with other people, we're with fellow believers, and we see them believing in something wrong, we don't rejoice in that. We correct it because we need to correct people in love with the truth of God. And lastly, Paul tells us, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Charles Spurgeon called this love's four sweet companions. That if you are seeing love in your life, you will be able to bear all things, you will be able to believe all things, you will be able to hope all things, and you will be able to endure all things. And he gives this incredible illustration talking about it. He says, I would, my brothers and sisters, that we could all imitate the pearl oyster. A hurtful particle intrudes itself into its shell, and this vexes and grieves it. It cannot eject the evil, and what does it do but cover it with a precious substance extracted out of its own life, by which it turns the intruder into a pearl. Oh, that we could do so with the provocations we receive from our fellow Christians, so that pearls of patience, gentleness, long-suffering, and forgiveness might be bred within us by that which has harmed us. An incredible illustration of what we can do with agape love. Because Paul says that love believes all things. Agape love believes that God works all things together for good, for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. Love hopes all things, knowing that we have this blessed assurance of Christ, who is the steadfast anchor for our soul. Love endures all things, knowing that endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And church, you need to know first and foremost that love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. 
Church, one day all the gifts will fade away. And I would even argue that one day faith and hope will fade away. Faith, because it is the believing in the evidence of things unseen. But church, one day, the scriptures declare to us, we will see God face to face. The evidence of things unseen that we believe in here will no longer require faith because we will see God face to face. You will stand in the presence of Jesus face to face. You will sit, you will stand in the presence of the Father face to face, in the presence of the Spirit face to face. There will no longer be a need for faith. Not only that, there will no longer be a need for hope. Because hope is this thing in the future that we're all longing for and we're all putting our hope in something. But the moment that we stand face to face with God, our hopes and our dreams are completely fulfilled. And we never have to have this longing for hope again. But the reason that love is the greatest is because love will never end. Love will never go away. The Bible tells us that the essence of God is love. Agape love. And for all eternity, God will give of himself to us face to face. And it'll never end. It'll never grow away. It will only grow more and more and become stronger and stronger and become more powerful and more real to us. Not for a day, not for a year, a decade, a century, or a millennium, but for all of eternity. And this is why the greatest of these is love. And so the, the challenge to us the encouragement to us as the children of God is to put this love into practice each and every moment of our lives. But we can only do that if we are connected to the source of love. We can only do it if we, if we know what love is, right? And so this is why preaching and teaching is important because it proclaims things to our mind. My, my, my voice is spoken and you received it hopefully into your ears. We pray that now by, by reason and logic, the, the definitions of these words are clear and they have made it into your head and you understand what it is that God is saying to you and calling you to when he calls you to agape love one another. But as it has been said, the longest distance in the entire world is that 18 inches between your head and your heart. Just because you know it does not mean you are automatically going to start doing it. And the only way it begins to happen is if God changes our heart from stone to flesh 
making us the children of God. And then as Jesus says in John chapter 15, we must abide in him. 